Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right. Hey, guys, I'm here. We're going to talk thermography today. I'm pretty excited about this one because I've been looking for someone to talk about thermography for a little while now. And we have Paul Goodbody, who's the senior thermographer from IRIS. Paul, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, Rob. I'm very good indeed, mate. Very, very happy. Very happy. Glad to talk about the subject. No, I'm happy to have you on. I mean, I've had people on the podcast to talk about, well, I mean, I'm sort of an expert in oil analysis, but we've had people on to talk vibration and ultrasound. And, you know, in my opinion, thermography is kind of one of the big four. And so I'm excited to f- and fired up to talk to you about it. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. Um, as you said there, I'm the senior thermographer for Iris. Um, sort of my background is um, I, I sort of served 24 years in the British Air Force. Uh, as an aircraft electrician, and what sort of happened there was I, um, I sort of diversified. So I, I went from that to what called NDT on aircraft, which is non-destructive testing. So aircraft have a fatigue life like anything has a fatigue life. So I sort of specialised in doing vibration analysis, uh, horoscope, and, and, and then we brought thermal, uh, ultrasound and then thermographics into it. And then from NDT, I then sort of really specialised into what we call night vision systems and infrared on tornado aircraft. So that's my sort of background. And so obviously, when my time was served in the British Air Force, um, I came and worked for IRIS and uh, just worked normally as a, what we call a service engineer. So I just used to go around doing th- uh, thermal imaging for companies who, who paid for us to come over and say, right, have a look at our electrical switch gear and things like that. So that's how I really started um, in, in, in the thermography sort of situation. And over the 13 years I've worked for Iris, I started off as what we call a level one thermographer, took my exams, and now I'm a level three thermographer. And that states that, you know, level three is the man who actually can teach as well. So I'm now into the realms of uh, actually passing on my sort of experience and knowledge onto sorts of the younger generation and maybe some engineers who are looking into this area now who want to do thermography and ultrasound. Uh, and as a predictive maintenance tool, is, is the best thing I've, I've ever seen, really. It's so easy, and, and the things you can find with this system is awesome. Awesome. No, that's – and that's one thing, you know, I wanted to ask you was, like, it seems it seems fairly intuitive, right? Like, you go around the plant, you have an infrared camera, you look for hot spots, you look for cold spots. Is it is it that easy? 
It is really, uh, and that's the bolt. You know, that's the bottom line. If you wanted to make it into sort of an easy A and B system, you know, infrared can find hotspots. That's what it's designed for. Um, and an infrared is a, a sort of a, a tool where heat is always developed. So for an infrared to work, you've got to be above what we call naught Kelvin, which is absolute zero. So anything above absolute zero will give you an image through heat. So, uh, and that's how we just. Well, absolutely. When you look at thermal imaging, people think, oh, it's a picture taken like a normal digital camera. It actually isn't. It's radiation. So everything produces radiation. So if you were to look through an infrared camera and had a look at, a, I don't know, your, your computer, it's actually the radiation being emitted from that object, which gives you the, the, the subject. It's not a pixelated system. It's actually how it works off heat. So infrared can find heat, but it also can find dampness. It can find loads of things. There's lots of applications with infrared. People feel that infrared is only used for electrical maintenance, and it, it, that's so untrue. You know, infrared we can use for um, it can be used in uh, construction. So if you're looking for any type of dampness in the wall, if you've got dampness creeping in, you can look at it through that. It can be used on mechanical. Uh, if you're looking at a bearing issue, shall we say, on a motor, friction is caused by a bearing being out of alignment, so it's causing heat. So you can actually find a system like that. Uh, another system it can be used for, which we use a lot over here in the UK, is underground heating. Uh, it's very big over here in the UK. If you wanted to trace the, the pipes to see if the pipes are working properly, you can actually trace the, the, the heat coming through. So that's how that system would work. Um, you can use it on um, infrared now is used in the medical system. Obviously, not you know to my standard, you'd really have to be properly trained. Uh, but you, you cancerous cells give off heat. So uh, there's, there's cameras now that can find cancerous cells in, in, in humans. It can be used on horses, you know, when they've got a lame horse. Again, if a bruised hoof or a bruised leg, it gives off heat. So infrared is, is, has a multitude of sort of uh, applications, not just electrical. Wow, that's really interesting. I never would have thought about that, but I'm sure our listeners are ready to go take pictures of their horse with, uh, with the camera. It's probably in the, in the US there, no means in the UK. But please, I don't want anybody just going into looking in hospital and saying, I've got an infrared camera, I'd like to see if you've got a swollen leg. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, I, I guess, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about is I'm sure you've seen these small FLIR cameras that you can attach to your phone that they're like a couple hundred bucks. I've seen them across multiple sites are those enough to do thermography or do we need a better tool for that right yeah that's a really really good question this so uh, it's all depending how much you pay for a camera or how much you, you get is you get back from it so if you buy a really expensive car you will get a better car got a better engine and it's exactly the same for an infrared camera uh, what we say is for what we've got a first line tool so if you've just got some engineers who are field engineers who just want to find the hotspots they're absolutely brilliant. There's nothing wrong with them. Because you've got to remember these, these cameras made by Fleur and Fluke and, and other companies around the world, they're not, they're not cheap. They're very, very expensive. You know, the camera that I sort of use, I use a Fleur camera when I do open services. You know, you've got to be in the realms of maybe twenty-five dollars to $35,000 worth of, of, you know, equipment there just to make a really good camera. But if you want a camera that is just going to find you a hotspot, and the engineers are walking around and says, oh, I found a hotspot. Then you can come back with a more detailed camera and then do more analysis. 
But yeah, they're good. Um, Cat made one. Uh, they've joined up with Flow. It's called Cat S60, I think. And that is a very, very good tool because it's actually got a built-in camera with the telephone. So you just get one button and it works. And then it works with all the infrared systems as well, which is in place, especially with our systems. And it works with Windows. It still works as long as you set all the, the parameters up correctly. But, the, you know, the main answer to your question is, yes, it does it. But it's all down to how detailed you like your report. And that's the bottom line. You buy a cheap camera, you get a cheap image. You buy a really expensive camera, and you get a better image. And it's just as simple as that. Simple as that. So when you're talking about those extra details, like, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So what we're looking at is, is obviously how many pixelations it causes, that like a 640 by 480, which is the top of the range system. So what you can do is that when you actually look at your image, it's not so grainy. Um, and again, the temperature ranges. So the cheaper your camera, you'll probably find that your temperature range or the temperature range of the camera is dictated to. So for instance, most cameras, if, if they're in the high-end scale, we call them the high-end. So when we talk about expensive cameras, we call them high-end cameras. So if we're looking at a high-end camera, you're looking at the temperature range will probably go from about minus 40 and probably up to a top range of about 800 degrees C. And I apologise, gents, I, I say in degree C, it's a metric system over here. You'd have to try work that out in Fahrenheit, but it's, um, it's in degree C. So that's what your parameters are. If you get a cheap camera, unfortunately, your range is going to be a lot shorter. So you'll probably find it'll only probably work from 0 degree C. Um, and then uh, it will probably only go up to maybe, I don't know, 170 or 180. And that will be the, um, that will be the problem on that. So it's all depending, that's what we mean by range. Uh, and then the, the sort of the clarity of your images again, because you've got a small lens on these small cameras, if you think that you buy these, they're called a FLIR 1, and they fix to the bottom of your um, Apple phones and your Android phones. It's a very, very small microprocessing system. So again, the detail you're going to get is going to be as not as great as if you've got a, a really good standard high-end camera uh, like that. We'll use an E95, for instance, to blur. That, again, is a really good uh, high-end camera, which, which is used for a lot. So those, like the pixel details, those are useful for electrical faults or for everything? Everything, absolutely, long, Rob. Yeah, you can use that for everything, my friend. You can use it for electrical, you can use it for mechanical, um, and you can use it for building. Again, the, the issues you have with infrared is that infrared has sort of two drawbacks, if there is one thing. Um, in the, especially on the electrical side. On the electrical side, uh, you have an issue where infrared can't see what we call corona. And corona is one of the very first stages of, infrared, of electrical failure. So if you're looking at, I know we're talking about ultrasound, but if you look at the ultrasound system, uh, you can, it's corona, then goes to tracking, and then tracking to RV. Well, infrared can see tracking and infrared can see arcing. But unfortunately, due to the, the signature waves and the heat signatures, there is no heat given off by corona, only sound. So again, that's where you'd have to look at that one. So there is always a drawback. So it's your first drawback. And the second drawback with infrared is infrared cannot see through what we call highly polished systems. So if you look at glass or what we call perspex, because they're highly reflective, if you, were to, you could not physically see through them. So this is, that's your two drawbacks. So if you wanted to look at some sort of electrical system, uh, you, you're taken into the realms of light and we open the switch key up and have a look at it. So those are your two sort of main drawbacks for infrared. So it doesn't matter what standard camera you have, 
those those drawbacks are going to be the same for a high end or a low end camera. Awesome. What am, you know? One of my favorite videos to show when I was teaching lubrication courses was they had three small, like tiny bearings that they bought and they over greased one, they packed one with dirt and then they had one just factory fill greasing and they shot it with like, they turned the, the, they turned the motor on and then they shot the whole thing with a thermography camera. And immediately you could see the heat that's being generated by not only the one with dirt, but also the one that was over greased. And I, I think at least from a lubrication side, it was so quick for people to look at this and go, wow, that's like a, a really damaging thing. And like, if we're looking at a mechanical system, like how much granularity do we need? Yeah, it's uh, again, is a very good question. And that's all depending really on the size of the motor we're looking at and what it actually does. You know, any any motor, shall we say, we use a paper mill for this. If you've got a, a motor which is, you know, kicking out over a thousand watts in energy, you know, that's a big ball. So that's going to be producing a lot of energy. So they're going to be, bearings are going to be bigger. So you've got to remember with bearings, it's just drawing out heat. Anything that is going to cause friction. So we know that if you've got some sort of uh, a bearing which is sort of on its way out, there's going to be a gap. So it's going to cause a lot more friction. And it causes the, you're into the ideas of vibration as well, because obviously you're going to get the same, you're going to get a, a total vibration side. But with heat, what you're going to get there, so anything that is causing friction is going to cause heat. And the faster the thing spins, the more heat is generated. So that's why it's so instant. And it's again, like you were saying there, Rob, if you over-grease something, unfortunately, because you've over-greased it, you're actually, the, the bearing can't get through the can't get through the grease. But the machine doesn't know that, so it's still trying to work its hardest. So not only are you generating heat from the bearing that is over-greased, you're actually, the, the machine is working probably, you know, uh, a, a lot harder under a load issue than it should be because it's designed to work at so many revolutions per minute. And if you over-grease anything, it's now got to get to the revolutions per minute you're asking it to do. It's going through studs. It's like, you know, running through porridge or through custard. That is very hard to do. So to keep the momentum going, you've got to work harder. And that's exactly the same as a machine. And that's what they happen. Yeah, no doubt. And I guess like when we're talking about predictive maintenance, oftentimes it's not just the raw reading that matters, right? Like we're looking at either like from an ultrasound or oil analysis or vibration, we're looking at what's normal and then we're looking at deviations from normal. How important is trending in thermography? Oh, yeah. yeah, again, trending is just one of the tools that we use. And it isn't just infrared, it's also, as you rightly said there, Rob, with, with ultrasound and, and vibration analysis. Trending is what we at IRS really, really abdicate because what we're trying to say, we're trending, you can actually see when the, when the motor or the switchgear is working at its optimum. And that's what you need to know. So if you trend it, uh, you actually can see, is the machine working? So we, what we call over in RSA, we, we sort of try to control what we call minimum maintenance. So there's a, a, a system going around, and it was, um, it, it was happening in the Air Force again, for instance, we used to have jets. A jet used to be taken to bits every year. Even though there was nothing wrong with the jets, it was taken to bits. It was stripped down to its bare knuckles, put back together. And nine times out of ten, what happened there was when we put it back together, the jet didn't work. So this is what we're trying to advocate. If you can trend something and you can actually say, right, this machine's been working at this so many revolutions per minute at its optimum system, and we've had absolutely no problems with it, why do we need to maintain it? Because the book says so or because it's a calendar-based maintenance. 
Well, we don't have to, because we can prove by trending that there's absolutely nothing wrong with that system. So then what we can do is then concentrate all our engineers and all our assets onto the areas which are failing. So you can actually say, well, this machine here, it was devised to do this, but it keeps failing for whatever reason. Well, you then can go back to the manufacturers and say, we've trended this machine for the last two years and it keeps failing at this point. Is there a modification that we can work on with you and then make it better? So that's why trending is brilliant because it, you can actually trend anything. It doesn't matter if it's a small motor, a large motor, or any type of electrical equipment. If you trend it, it, it gives you the, the real-time data. So when you go to meetings, when you go to production managers, you go, right, the machines are just working overtime, and you can trend it, and it's just the most best tool ever. It really is. So when we want to trend stuff, we have to make sure that the readings that we take are repeatable, i.e. from the same location, the same way each time. Where where on a, on equipment should we be taking our readings from? Right, again, again, now you've hit a really good one. Under infrared, it's what we call, we call them IR points. Um, so there are certain systems you can use. Uh, if we were looking at like a buzz bar joint, um, you'll always find on a buzz bar joint is that... Um, a lot of buzz bars, what we call buzz bar joints, are really highly reflective. So you need to see something which is one point. So we call them emissivity labels. Now, I think with an emissivity label is it's the same point. So you actually put it on the buzz bar and you give it a name. So shall we say we call it buzz bar one, and it has 16 joints on it. So you go buzz bar one, joint one, and then at buzz bar one, at joint two, and then joint three. So you could have a, I would call an emissivity label on those. You can then actually use that system for all it. So when you write the reports, you can say buzz bar one, joint one. And you can then take an image and say, can we use time? So you keep the emissivity the same, which is what we say for paper running, what we call electrical tape, is 0.96. So you leave it at the same point. Again, another system you can use, again, on motors, is um, if it's a highly reflective motor, you can use something like paint. Anything that's like uh, an emulsion paint, so it's got, it's, it's rough to the touch or emery cloth it and you can make make it one point and you call it the inspection point so that's what you want to do so depending if you've got a team of thermographers working for your company or if you use a company that you bring in every two three months or whatever you bring them in if they know the points they've got to look at then they will always be taken at the, at the same point um, motors on vibration they normally have a, a, a an area it's called the vibration point which is actually now put in place by manufacturers so you know the same point with infrared, uh, it's it's one of these things that if you go around on what we call a virgin, it's a virgin survey, it's never been done, that's when you have to do the hard work. So you, you normally go as the lead thermographer, you would go around putting the points where you want, where the best the best results are going to be. And the best results on a, on a buzz bar is always going to be what we call a man-made joint, because that's where the failure will probably happen. It won't happen halfway up a buzz bar because it's, it's solid. Most weak points of any sort of electrical connection is always where the man-made joint is, where the cable joins the bus bar or where the two bus bar join. So you call it the inspection point, and that's what we need to be aware of. Where would be some good inspection points on mechanical systems? It's mechanical systems, right. Again, so you're looking at probably you've got, uh, as you know, a motor has what you call an MDE and a DE. So you have your non-drive end and your drive end. So on the non-drive end where the fan is, you need to have be looking at the rear end, so you just look at a point on the cowling at the end, because uh, if the blades are out of sync, they will cause a friction, so that's where you need to have a look at there. 
and on the drive end wherever the, the shaft is coming into the motor itself again you look at uh, the point there and it's best to put it just where the bearings are so right on the edge right at the uh, edge of the, uh, the drive end and you just put like a yellow dot and you call it IR point and that's where you put it so that's where your failures will be. So once we've sort of nailed down the locations like what are some general guidelines on how often we should be taking readings? No, yeah, and this is a, again. That's what these are one of the, the million dollar questions. If we had the answer to these, we'd all be rich men. Uh, but it's dependent how critical your assets are. So again, this all comes down to if you look, which, for instance, in a data center, uh, and you've got switchgear that it, it controls all the internet banking for one of the big banks here in the UK, you would call that a critical asset. So again, you would probably be looking at about every three months to do that on the switchgear there. Um, but it's all depending how critical your assets are. Uh, if you've got a, a motor pump that is, it, it, that is just a slurry pump that is, it just fails out water when it fills up, it's, it's not so critical if that fails, so you could probably do that every six months. It really, really depends on what your assets are. So that's, when you go around and do surveys, you need to ask the client, what do they class as a critical asset? Because that's the way I would do it, is um, at the beginning of my surveys, if they want to... You know, do what you call two surveys. You have a um, report by exception, which is a survey where you just go and scan all the assets and you take an image of just that one area, or you have what you call a full report. The full report is where you take an image of every asset that you've got and record it and put it down. So my sort of rule of thumb is that is right at the beginning, I do a full survey on everything, so I get an image of everything. And then maybe if they call me in and I say, well, for instance, we'll say a paper mill, uh, we do a couple of paper mills over here in the UK. Well, they do their surveys every four months. They would like it to be done every four months because they, the machines can't go down because it costs a lot of money. And secondly, the the the, uh, the event of fire. So if I'm going into areas where normally the mechanics and the electricians don't go due to the very fact that they don't need to because I, I come and do it, well, I can actually do a, a safety survey while I'm there. Not only am I doing an infrared survey, I'm actually making sure that there's there's no, you know, backup of paper or anything hanging around the motor board in the fire. So that's another system I do as a sort of a safety one. You know, we go around there every, every, every four months. So it's, again, it's all dependent on the criticality of what your assets are. Um, but the, the, the rule of thumb that we use here is that it's an annual, so you have an annual survey. Uh, data centers normally do about every three months. Uh, the paper mill, as I said, they probably do theirs every four months. Um, and then there's other companies who ask, who ask me to come in. Uh, their insurance companies have come to me and said, look, we would like them to do surveys once in the winter and once in the summer. Because in the wintertime, they're using all the heating systems because it's a different atmosphere. That when you go back in the summer, they don't have the heating systems on. They may have the air handling units on, the air conditioning systems. So that's how we do it. So the good rule of thumb is at least once a year. Uh, I would recommend at least twice a year. So how long does a reading take? Like... In vibration, you know, it depends on the speed of what's turning and the granularity we want to get. But is it just a matter of walking up to the equipment and taking a picture, or is there time that the sensor needs to be looking at it? No, it's an instant image. So when you completely look at it, again, with ultrasound, what you would do is you'd wait for revolutions. Um, you know, she's rightly said there. So if you listen to ultrasound, you if you had if you knew it ran through a cycle, so like a steam trap, 
You know, that steam trap runs through a system where you would sit there and, and let it cycle maybe two or three times. But with infrared, it's instant. Uh, if, there's a, if there's a fault, the heat's there. It's instant heat. So you can have a look at it. It's The thing you would probably have to do is have a look at and say, why, why is it causing this? What you've got to do is it's all right saying there's something wrong, but these, the, the, the customer is actually then sort of relying on your knowledge to say, well, what is causing this? Why have we got an issue? So what I normally do is if I'm looking at a contact, I'll go, right, what's it running? Is it running a big pump? Is it, big, is it running a, a, you know, a big motor? What does that motor run? So if, if you know what you're looking at on the switchgear, you should be able to say, right, shall we say, for instance, um, it's looking at it's running a big water pump for a big paper mill. Well, you look at the load. Well, if it's, if it's drawing something like 600 amps, that's a lot of amperage to be turning. So it's always going to be a bit warm. So then you look at it and say, well, what's the ambient temperature? And then that's when you start making your decisions. You say, right, you can do what we call a light for light. So if you've got two switchgear, which you're running two big motors, and they're doing exactly the same, are the temperatures exactly the same? So it might be a high temperature because it's under load, but is it is the temperature on motor A running exactly as on motor B? Well, if the answer is yes, well, I would then say, right, there's nothing wrong. That's what it's classed as its operating temperature. But if they're both doing the same and motor A is running 60 to 70 degrees higher than motor B and they're doing exactly the same, well, that's where you say, right, motor A's got a massive fault. And that's, an, and that's how you do it. Then you go, right, so that's how we put motor A there. And then you then start putting what we call dots over it. So when you take it back for analysis, you then put in spots, what we call spot temperatures. And then just see if it's the phases of the issue, or is it a load issue, or is it a harmonic issue? You know, because obviously you're out of phase, uh, or what we call unbalanced load systems, one one load, if one, sorry, one circuit is actually drawing all the current where the uh, out of the three phase systems and the other two are not drawing anything, well, you have a problem because one one phase is taking all the load. So then what you'd have to go back and say, right, I would recommend you shed load this and shed and split the load over in three, in three, in three phases instead of just running off one. So those are the sort of things. And it all comes with either a electrical background knowledge or over time as a thermographer you will learn these systems and there's characteristics. The characteristics are the same, they don't change. You know, your major faults in electrical are a load, a load circuit, a loaded circuit where the heat is the same all the way through the fuse, all the way through, the temperature at the top is roughly the same as the bottom. So you know that's a load. Uh, if you've got what we call a connection issue, the connection issue will be the heat will be actually where the connection is failing. So you might have a temperature right at the top of the so fuse be, I don't know, we call it 22 degrees, where the connection is at 72, but then when you go back down to the bottom connection, it's running at 22. So you know for a fact that the connection in the middle is failing because the two temperatures at the top are the same. So that's how you do it. And that's, that's a sort of rule of thumb. No, that's a, that's a great explanation. I guess if people are listening and they don't currently use infrared like, what would you recommend for them to get started? It's one of those questions. I would, you know, we was talking about the low-end cameras. That's the best way to start, is if, if is, is to buy a cheap camera, if this is the way they want to go, and just see how good the system is. Because as soon as they see how good it is and what they can do with infrared and how they can use it with, with such a cheap camera. So, for instance, I know for a fact that the Cata 650 phone with the infrared camera it sort of retails at about $600. You know, you can buy them on Amazon or wherever. You don't have to go to a specialist to buy them. And then you can start using it because 
it's the thing to do is actually go around and use it and see how good infrared is is it will pick up faults um you know if you've got a hot spot it really will so that's the way i would start start cheap start with something that you can um sort of start to know and the other thing is training um you know it's like anything if you if you buy a car you've got to know how to drive it's the same with infrared really you know it's all right buying the cameras but if you don't know how to a switch it on or b how to interpret the images or even see how to use all the tools that are at your disposal then you're not going to get the um you're not going to get the benefits of what you bought so it's all right buying the camera but i always recommend that the training is one of the most important things you can do on that one so training first we'll buy the camera obviously then train i would definitely get trained and then you'll see the benefits because then you can actually go in with a bit more confidence and go right i know what i'm doing <laughs> Training's always a good start. <laughs> it's a start for me, my friend. <laughs> so I, I guess, you know, you, you go around a lot and you see a lot of different programs. Like what are some common mistakes that you see people make when using infrared and how do we avoid making those mistakes? Yeah, uh, as, as discussed just a second ago about the training, people, when you buy a camera and, and you get it, you've got to make sure that the settings are correct. Uh, nine times out of ten now, most cameras um, have what we call an auto setting, an auto focus. Um, you've got to make sure that your emissivity is correctly set. So the emissivity, what we mean by that is how much reflection is your camera going to be taking. So the higher your emissivity, the, the, the closer to the actual true temperature is going to be. So the best way of trying to explain it is, is if you have, um, you're using for red windows again, for instance, so imagine you look at a nice hotspot um, and then you take the temperature and there's nothing between the camera and the hotspot. You've left the emissivity at 0.96. You're going to get a true reading. So so we say that hotspot is 70 degrees Celsius. And if you put an infrared window in front of it, you'll still see the, the object. But I think the, the, what will happen is you're actually blocking some of the heat to coming onto the camera. So you'll probably lose what we call 30%. You'll lose a 30% of your emissivity. So you'll get a 30, de 30 degree difference. So all of a sudden from 70, it will be down to 50 or 40. Um, so that's what you've got to be aware of. So if, you, if, if you are then going to use an infrared window, is that you've got to make sure that you know what the transmission rate of whatever you're looking for, either a crystal or a polymer, what you're going to be looking at. So that's the, the main thing that people get wrong, is that you have the emissivity. Because if you have the emissivity, what we down right low. So if you have it in at, I don't know, you're instance you've got it set at 12 or 13 on the emissivity your temperature readings are going to be in the hundreds of degrees it's, it pushes it up because it's telling the camera that you're looking at a really highly reflective material so it's taking in all the ambient temperature well so something that should be 70 and you've left the emissivity right down into i don't know you need a point one oh for instance you will probably get a reading of about 190 degrees c so it will give you about a hundred 110 degree difference. So the first thing is, is make sure that the emissivity is correct on that one. Um, and then if, if anything else is changed on your camera, so make sure you've got the settings correct and the emissivity is correct. Uh, most infrared cameras have a, what we call an emissivity table built into them. So you can actually go into the settings, go into emissivity and it will say emissivity table. If you know what you're looking at, it will say cast iron or say highly polished chrome or whatever, you can hit those and then it will change your camera to the right settings. So that's the main thing to be aware of is the emissivity on it. Because if you get that wrong, 
reading to do wrong. And the other fault is a thing called image of focus. If you take an image and it's out of focus, you cannot go back and take that image. You can't do anything on the, with your software. So most uh, cameras come with their own sort of, you know, software systems, and you cannot change the focus. So if you take an out of focus image through infrared, uh, the readings will be false. They probably change about 10 or 11 degrees difference if it's out of focus. And unfortunately, with the software, you cannot change the focus through it. You can change emissivity, you can change lots of things. You can change what we call our palette, which is the color of your infrared. So most people look at infrared, they see the black or white. It can be what we call rainbow, or the other one is ironbow. And ironbow is one that most electricians use. You can change that in your software, but unfortunately, you cannot change the focus. You, don't, you can't change the focus consciousness. So those are the sort of your two major failings. Um, is is the emissivity is wrong? We plug it out of focus. So with the emissivity, if we take the like, let's say we just set our camera to a hundred percent. If we took every reading that way, we'd still be able to trend the values. We just wouldn't get correct uh, static limits. Absolutely. Yeah. What you can do again, if you leave it at one, the only trouble is leaving it at one, and that means it's it's what we call black body. So. It's like anything, if you, if you leave it there, you, 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 because you're at the top end, your readings are going to be a lot truer. Uh, the main fault is, is if you write down the bottom end in the point zero point zero eight zero nines, that's where you're going to get the false readings. But with the, the new software you get from Fluke and Flow and other companies, now you can actually change your MCT and it will change your results in the software. And it's not such a major issue as it used to be years ago where you couldn't change it. But it, with the up-to-date software, you now can change it. The main issue is, is if you take something out of focus, you really are sore. Especially if you've taken all your images out of focus, you've then gone back and you may be hundreds of miles away from where you, you, you did the image and you're back at home. You know, that's if you've lost a whole day, that means you'd have to go back and retake the whole lot. So if it's anything, it will be made sure you've got it. Awesome. And, and I guess my last question for you, Paul, is, like other than you know what we've already mentioned, do you have any top tips for people who are using thermography that you haven't mentioned yet? Um, the top tips, yeah, um, yes, yeah, a good one. Here we go. Yeah, yeah I've just remembered. It. If you take an image, don't take an image with you directly behind it, um, because what you'll find is we call it the, the thermographer's sway. That's the best way of explaining. If you take an image, you make sure that you're not directly behind, because what will happen is. The reflection from or the heat from your body will reflect what you're looking at. So what you need to do is just move yourself maybe, I don't know, 10 degrees. But leave the camera straight, but you move yourself away. Just so you're not in direct line of the, of the image. That would be my best tip on that one. It's called a thermographer's sway. So if you move backwards and forwards, make sure you're not directly behind. Because your heat might give you a false reading. That's a great tip. I, I mean, maybe you need a tripod for the for the camera. <laughs> yeah, well, you would, but I mean, some of the places you go into, especially like myself, you just wouldn't have either. You haven't got the ability to put a tripod up. It's, the thing with thermography, it's sort of handheld, you, you know, because some of the places you go into, you know, it's the best way. And, and the good thing about the infrared cameras now, they're designed to be handheld and actually operate from the hand and easy to get into places. So, as I said, my my top tip really is if you just stand up maybe 10 degrees difference from the camera, then you would be fine to Cool. So this one I really enjoy asking people because I like to see where, where your head's at. So with the 
onset of the IAOT and augmented reality and virtual reality and machine learning, where do you see the future of reliability going in the next two to five years? I mean, it's, it's really, it really has gone up leaps and bounds from what it was maybe five, six years ago, uh, especially with VR. I mean, we use a system now, um, we have it based over in the, in the US there, in, in Iris, is that we have a virtual reality system where we can actually now start teaching people how to use a virtual reality camera, if you know what I mean, with a headset, so it's built into the software. We can actually have the ability now to actually go around a complete switch route uh, and actually pretend uh, under virtual reality, you can actually tell them where to put the, the infrared windows now. Um, you can tell them what sort of field of view, the FOV, or the field of view from your infrared window will be like. You, you can actually now start showing people the safety implications and, and how the whole system works. So VR is really important to us to the extent that when we do um, do surveys now, we um, we use a, a system which gives us a 3D system. So we actually scan the whole switch gear and we do it as a build-up. So we have a handheld system or we have a system which you just put on a tripod and we just scan your whole switch room. It probably takes a couple of hours. The, the readings you'll get from that, we can actually now do custom systems uh, for your for the, for the panels. So instead of keep going back to manufacturers and say, oh, we can put something here, we now can actually dissect a complete switch gear by doing this sort of virtual reality system and actually going, right, this is going to be the best place. And the good thing about virtual reality is nobody gets hurt. You might fall over, as most people do in virtual reality, when they're trying to run on the system. So. But we can actually do routes and routes now for doing tomography. So I can teach under virtual reality to say, right, guys, how are you going to do a survey? And, and, and that's the way I see it going. And, and it, as I said, in the last five years, it really has gone above leaps and bounds. Yeah. And, and it's like, you can start to see it. Like I got to, I got to try out uh, the Iris virtual reality at the conference and it was pretty interesting, pretty fun. And, and I think it's like, obviously it's only going to get better. So we'll, we'll start seeing it pop up and be more refined, I think, coming forward. Yeah. It's a good, it's a really good tool as well for trade shows. Really good. Cause it actually then shows you people, cause it's, it's all right explaining things to, to, to engineers and and members of the public who come into to the trade shows to have a look. If you can actually physically show them what it physically is meant to do, then that then alleviates a lot of the, the misconceptions about infrared and the misconceptions about uh, infrared windows and switchgear. So that's the way I think. Absolutely. So, Paul, you know, I want to thank you for coming on. Now, do you have anything to plug? Like, obviously, people listening, you should go to iris.com. That's I-R-I-S-S.com. Um, but are you going to be at any conferences coming up? Do you want people to follow you on LinkedIn? Yeah, absolutely. Please do follow me. I mean, the better is I'm over in, um, I'm, I'm over, we're doing a lot with reliability guys at the moment. So that's the way Iris is going. We're, we're, we're going down the reliability system. So a lot of our trade shows, and especially me, I, I sort of look after the Middle East area, uh, but I'm over in Abu Dhabi um, in, the, in the next two weeks from the 6th of April. I'm over there doing a CDM conference. Um, and I'm showing all our wares again. So the thing to do is have a look at our innovations if they can go onto Facebook and look at Iris under there and look at our innovations because we really are now going off the realms of not just doing infrared. So in the old days, it, you know, if you said you had an infrared window, that's what your window did, one thing. Well, we're now way past that. You know, we've now designed a, a series and it's, we, we call it an inspection port, I think is the best way. So not only can we do 
visual system through our infrared uh, through our um, windows because it's a clear polymer. We've now designed it so it can take a um, ultrasound um, EDS, it's called partial discharge system. So it's actually got a uh, transducer built into it. And also, it's um, we can actually do from that and do the IR. So all of a sudden, we've got one inspection aircraft which can do visual IR and partial discharge stroke ultrasound. So have a look at the innovations we're producing because there's nobody else like us. And, and I know I work for Iris and I'm not trying to pick us up, but there's nobody else can do what we do. And that's the honest truth. There's no other company there that's following the base systems. Um, and due to that very fact is that we now can start doing other things. And we also do training. You know, that's the other thing as I talked about earlier in the podcast here is that, you know, I do believe in training. And we do offer some of the best training in the world. You know, I, I, we have three or four global instructors who are, who are top of their draw in ultrasound and vibration, and obviously in infrared. So have a look at it, you know, see what you want to do. Follow us in LinkedIn. Uh, Iris has a, um, has a LinkedIn page, we have a Facebook page. Log in and have a look at what, what we're doing. And, um, you know, any questions from anybody, we are more than happy to answer. You know, the time and knowledge, we don't, we don't ask for payment for people to ask. Somebody asks me a question, write me an email. I'm more than happy to pass on my knowledge and ask any questions that can be uh, sort of useful. Perfect. That's a great offer. Yeah. So if anyone's listening, his LinkedIn st- information will be in the podcast notes and he'll be tagged in the post if you got f- through it from LinkedIn. So he won't be hard to find. Uh, Paul, thanks for coming on today. It's an absolute pleasure, Rob. Thank you very much for asking me, mate. And uh, anybody else who would, uh, if there is anybody from out there, it's a really good trade, guys. I do say that. It's really good. And thanks for uh, letting me have my, my say, really. Well, thanks very much indeed. No, it was great. I, I learned a lot that I didn't know, so I'm happy about that. Oh, thank you very much indeed, mate. Thank you very much. Perfect. So everyone who's still listening, we appreciate you listening so much.